Good morning. Like Ben said, our reading this morning is out of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. If you'd like to use the Pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 977. So I'll give you a minute to get there. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Amen. Thank you. I think it lines up well when we've seen that video. I mean, I wanted you to get a, a snapshot of this broader family, not just a denomination, but a missionary movement. And I think it also lines up really well with some of the themes that we heard at council that are lining up in Ephesians repeatedly that we see. And maybe you heard some of those linked together. Or you saw them in those images. Unity and oneness, mission and purpose, passion and sacrifice. Why? Because of Jesus, because of his amazing, life-altering grace, we are a people, we must be a people, not just a movement, but a people who are passionately convicted of Acts 1.8, that as his followers, the Holy Spirit will come upon us in power, that we would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, that every person, that every people, tribe, tongue, and language would come to worship and know and love King Jesus. He's worthy to be loved. He is worthy to be followed. And because of that, He is worthy to be proclaimed. And even when it costs us something. More on that next week. This is the first glimpse we have in Ephesians that Paul was actually writing this letter from prison. Keep that in mind as we've gone through so many powerful themes and he's poured out his heart with love, with joy, with passion for the church. And he is writing from bondage. We'll dive into that because it's worthy of, that's one of the sermons I wrote this week. I think it's worthy of a standalone 
Let's recap slightly some of the themes and be reminded in case we need that reminder of Paul's primary purpose in writing this letter to this church, this church in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. It was a regional church and a church he loved dearly and spent years of his life with. He writes to them to remind them who they are because of what God has done and therefore how they are to live. And so he spends the first half of the letter, the first three chapters, reminding them of the indicatives of their faith, what is true about them. And then the second half, the imperatives. What must you then do because of who you are and because of who your God is? It's very important that we understand at least that basic framework of this letter, lest we take it out of context. Up to this point, every spiritual blessing is ours in Jesus, Paul says. Grace abounds. Freedom is possible. We are rich and powerful in Christ. We are seated in the heavenlies. We were dead, now we're alive. We were lost, now we're found. We were separated from God without hope, now we are brought near. We must live with hope, with peace. Our chains have been broken. Our sins are forgiven. Draw near to God with freedom and confidence through the power of the Holy Spirit. Each one probably worthy of a sermon and has been. And just as Paul begins to transition, it seems, to the imperatives, and he does so through a prayer at the end of this chapter, right? He starts this new thought, for this reason, so for those reasons, for this primary reason of the gospel, and then he would pray for them and then launch into the imperatives. But it seems that he just can't quite release himself from the message he's been proclaiming. You notice that in verse 1, for this reason, and then he goes on an excursus. A couple dashes there, and then he starts rambling, running on, a river of stream of consciousness before he gets to the prayer, this powerful prayer that we'll look at in just a couple weeks, and then into the second half, the imperatives. He'll begin chapter 4 the very same way, for this reason. So think of these, these words here that we just heard read as still powerfully gripping his heart and he must express them. And what is it? The gospel, the gospel for Paul, that God's redemption is for all peoples, that we are one in Christ Jesus. He can't seem to let that theme go. He calls it a mystery, the mystery that has now been revealed. Verse 6, the mystery, this mystery is that the Gentiles, the ethnes, the ethnic one, all ethnic Groups, all cultures, all peoples. That's what that word means. That all peoples are fellow heirs and members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. So you hear that for Paul, that it is one and the same. The gospel for Paul is Jesus for all peoples. That's the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister with a specific opportunity and call to preach to the Gentiles. This grace was given me through the working of God's power. This is the mystery. The mystery of life is made known. In Jesus, all things come together. Verse 5, it was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, but it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. We looked at that, that term mystery way back in chapter 1 when Paul first used that concept 
And this is chapter 1, verse 7 and following. In Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He's lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. What Paul is saying is that until Jesus appeared, until the incarnation, and ultimately until his transformation, his glorification started to become known to the disciples, and ultimately through his crucifixion and resurrection, but until Jesus, the fullness of God's plan, and therefore the full purpose of life was a mystery. It was veiled. Paul says it was hidden for ages. The purpose, and me, for the purpose and meaning of life, of joy, of peace, was out of grasp. This would be like living in eternal twilight. Think about the twilight that happens before the sunrise, if anyone's up that early. And things are just starting to become distinct and visible. But like living in that eternal twilight where the sunrise never comes, it never crests. Has anyone been... In the north regions in the winter, Alaska, where the sun almost barely crests the horizon. Think about living in this eternal twilight where your eyes have become used to it, and so you can perceive and see to a point, but everything still remains hazy. That's the image that Paul is speaking of. That until Jesus came, the light of the world, people lived in darkness. The gospel writer Matthew used this imagery, quoting from the prophet Isaiah. This is Matthew 4, verse 16. The people dwelt in darkness, and those dwelling in darkness have now seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. The light of the gospel. The gospel is not only the saving work of Jesus on the cross. The gospel is all that God has done and is doing to redeem all peoples and things to Himself, to make them right, to restore them to what He created in the garden. That is the gospel. As we heard on the video, it's the best news ever. It's the greatest news, not just good news. It's the purpose and meaning of all life And until Jesus came, the Messiah, the Savior, even though the Old Testament, all of it points forward to Jesus, until He comes as the light to reveal, we remain veiled in darkness. God's purpose was hidden just as His presence was veiled in the temple. But now in Jesus, through His death on the cross, that veil has been torn, the wall has been broken down, the mystery of all life and history and eternity of purpose, meaning, joy, freedom, grace, satisfaction, confidence, it has all been made known. The mystery has been made known in Christ. And God has called us to know it. God has drawn us to see Him. God is a God who wants to be known, who reveals, who speaks, who is active, who is present, and He's called you and me to know Him. He's called us to trust Him. And in calling us to be His sons and His daughters, He is also calling us to proclaim Him. 
to make him known. It is one and the same call. They cannot be broken apart. And too often we do. And Paul's life, both his life and his words, proclaim this reality of our call to be his ambassadors, to be his heralds, and sometimes the last and least likely become the greatest heralds of all, like Paul. I mean, to be sure, Paul had a unique story which God used and worked through in powerful ways, and he refers to that in this, in this passage. Verse 2, he says, I assume that you have now heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. Verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. For to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone the plan of the mystery that was hidden for ages in God. He created all things. Paul had a unique story, but don't we all? In fact, what great hope for those who consider themselves unworthy, insignificant, perhaps not special in any way, perhaps considering our own story, our own past, our own actions as disqualifying us, maybe even our yesterday. And Paul's life and proclamation of God's grace and forgiveness says no. It says we are called to be his heralds and sometimes light shines most brightly from the darkness. Grace abounds more and more for and from those who know the depths of their sin. And that's Paul's story. He says, I'm the least of all the saints. Elsewhere, he'll say, I'm the least of all sinners. The worst, Paul himself persecuted the church, sought to destroy it, put it to death. He hated the church. He hated the message of Jesus. He believed it was blasphemy against his God, and he set his life to destroy it until Jesus got a hold of his life, blinded him in order that he would see. And so for any one of us, who comes and says, how could I be one who, how could I be a, a proclaimer of the gospel, of the truth? I, I, I've done too much or I haven't done enough. I don't know enough. Any hesitation, any doubt should be eradicated. We are called to be proclaimers of this gospel because of what God has done to save us. And though we grow in our understanding of the fullness of God's plan now revealed, and rightly so, we are to always grow up in Him. All we need know is that, like the blind man said, who was healed by Jesus, I don't know who that man is. Right? This is day two of his healing, his salvation in Jesus. I don't fully know who that man is, but what I do know, I tell you, I was blind and now I see. And that's our testimony. Jesus has reached into my life and poured out His grace and mercy. I don't yet know fully, but I'm coming to know Him. And so we become proclaimers of this gospel. And though each one of us has a different story than Paul, 
Just like any of our story, our past, our history is different than anyone else in this room today, yet we find ourselves in the same place today, in the same room, hearing the same call of Jesus to follow him, to trust him fully, to bow before him, to surrender life to this worthy king, to confess we are, like Paul, the last, the lost, the least likely broken in need of healing, longing to know true life, longing to know true peace and love and freedom and joy, to know that what we are doing in life is exactly what God has called us to do. It has purpose, meaning, and influence. Tired of trying to find in the world the fulfillment of that longing, that the things of this world that we pursue after and fill our lives with only leave us empty and longing for more. And until we come to that place and say, in confession and repentance, I turn from that pursuit, it continues to prove itself for what it is. And I turn to you, Jesus, the author of faith and life, It is not a mystery. It has been revealed. It is not out of grasp. God is neither aloof nor amorphous. He is not a God unreachable at the top of some unclimbable mountain. God plays no games. He calls and draws all peoples to himself to know his grace. That's what Paul was proclaiming in chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved. Not because of you, not because of your works, but because of Him and what He's done. And so by faith we believe it, we receive it. And so I just wonder if today you're hearing this call clearly. Perhaps surprisingly, for some who haven't responded to Jesus in a way that says, Jesus, my life is yours. I long for all these things. And perhaps surprisingly because you don't intend to respond to him today and yet he is pulling at your heart and soul. The image that the New Testament authors often use, and they were kind of a a group of fishermen, uh, many of them, they found their livelihood in and around uh, the lakes, Lake Sea of Galilee. And they use this image of a net being cast and being drawn in by the love of God. We still have our life with us. There's no hook in our mouth, but when we still have some freedom to swim, but we are just being pulled in. And I wonder if any experience that pulling now or have in your story, just that drawing, and you were running, but you got roped in by the love of God and His pursuit of you. And perhaps some are just being reminded of that. Others are responding, will respond now for the first time. If you go to James chapter 4, there's a powerful passage there. When James writes, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. You say, how do we do do that? It's an incredible promise. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. We also know through the story of God's redemption that He first has come to us. As Paul says in Acts 17, He is not far from any one of us that we would reach out and find Him because He has already come to us in Jesus. 
He is pursued after us even when we are running and rebelling, rebelling as children do. But what a promise. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's what Paul is saying here. We can now approach God with freedom and confidence. The veil has been torn. We have access to him. Everyone, regardless of who you are or aren't, your history, your story, your sins, they're all erased in the cross as you come to him in repentance. So how do we do that? How do we draw near to God? We've been talking about this tool that Pastor Mike Riches articulates, the four R's. You've heard Craig preach on it. You've heard me preach on it. And maybe repetition will lead to uh, memory, remembrance. So four R's. We come, we draw near to God, and He will draw near to us. That's His promise to us. Isn't that why we are here? To draw near to Him, that we would know Him more fully, worship Him more completely, have a clear direction and purpose with our steps out of these doors and through the rest of our week to come. So we come in repentance. Repentance is a gift. It simply means turning the right direction. No one would admit it, but if you've been lost before and you've had to pull a U-turn, it's a gift to be able to pull a U-turn safely and easily, especially in Seattle traffic. And when you come to that place, it's clearly marked. I don't know how many times I've said to Catherine, can I... Can I pull a Yui right here? I don't see a sign. And so then you do it kind of out of fear. And if you have to pull the dreaded three-point turn because you don't want to catch the curb, how awful that is and people are honking at you. And I could tell a story about the streets of Madrid and trying to pull a U-turn and it did not go well. We totaled that car. Well, someone else totaled that car. I said, should I tell a story? I shouldn't tell a story. No. But they gave us another car. But the gift of being able to turn around, that's repentance. And when you come to a place where it's clearly marked, you turn is safe. Oh, praise the Lord. I'm going the wrong direction. I need to be going that way. And it's safe to turn. That's repentance. It's coming to an awareness that the direction I was going was not the right direction. It wasn't going to get me to where I wanted to be. So now we bring that spiritually. And we, how often do we need that? Martin Luther said the whole course of the life of a Christian is one of repentance. And if we think repentance is some guilt-ridden, shame-based, self-centered, focused reaction, then we are wrong. We don't understand it. It is a gift to us. As God rightly and sometimes, sometimes strongly, sometimes slowly brings a conviction. And it's not always a 180, is it? And one degree off can get us a long ways off over a long amount of time, can't it? Repentance is turning the right direction. Oh, that's not the right way. I've been convicted. I must turn according to God's word. It's a gift. So we come in repentance. With that comes confession, the confession of, Lord, I was wrong in this direction. Whether it's word, thought, attitude, or deed, your word convicts me. I was wrong. Forgive me, Lord. That's confession. And we turn. You're making clear to me where I must go now. Sometimes it's, it's done with great brokenness and emotion and crying out to the Lord. Sometimes it's just walking through your day and going, Lord, forgive me. Thank you. I see this. Praise God for that. We come in repentance. That's R number one. This is drawing near to the Lord. Repentance. R number two. We rebuke the enemy. Man, we often just skip over this step. We have an enemy who is a liar he is a killer, he's a murderer, he's a thief, he wants to steal, destroy, and speak lies into our life. Jesus, just on the precipice of, of formal 
open public ministry was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the enemy and to ultimately show his triumph over the enemy. We have the same enemy. He was there at the garden speaking the same lies. He has not gone away. He is sly. He is crafty. He prowls around. He waits, but he speaks lies into our life, the opposite of God's truth. Or he takes God's truth and he twists it. So we are called to rebuke the enemy. In that same passage, James 4, James says, resist the enemy and he will flee. It's active. It, can, it may as well say, rebuke the enemy and he will flee. We have an active response. It doesn't say, ignore the enemy. It doesn't say, God, protect me from the enemy. It says, rebuke the enemy. Because as ambassadors... When you put your faith into Jesus and follow him, you become his ambassadors. He is the king. We become ambassadors of reconciliation. All authority is given to the king, and he gives it to his ambassadors to go and proclaim the gospel, the message of his redemption. And so with that authority in the name of Jesus, we rebuke the enemy and his lies. Satan, you have no place here. You have no presence here. You are not allowed here. That is a false Word, here is the truth, the truth of God's word. You must flee. We're not talking about crazy Hollywood exorcism, fear of the demons behind every bush. We're talking about the reality of the spiritual realm that Craig had preached on. Well, thorough, articulate the last two weeks. Thank you. If you haven't listened, listen. We're talking about the spiritual realm that Paul will say in chapter 6 when we get there. Man, our battle is not against the flesh and blood. It's not against the earthly. It's against the spiritual realms and the forces of evil. We must be conscious. We must have eyes, spiritual eyes to see. So we rebuke the enemy for his lies, his lying tongue, his presence, for some ability that he has to build up strongholds of sin, of deceit, of division, of brokenness in our lives, they can all be torn down in the power given to us by Jesus through his spirit according to his word. Three, as we do that, and here you say, how do, okay, let me, let me press on this. I skipped over. I wrote this. This can be a prayer. This can be a routine rhythm that you would, just go through regularly in your day. In the authority given to me by King Jesus as his ambassador and an ambassador for reconciliation, we rebuke the lie, the work, and the presence of the enemy. He must flee. Third R. Repent, rebuke, replace. We replace the lies of the enemy with the truth of God's word. This is so vital. It's exactly what Jesus did as he rebuked the enemy. As the enemy twisted God's word and lied, even quoted scripture, taking it out of context and twisted it around just like he did at the garden. Did God really say, seeding doubt, division, deception? What does Jesus do? Right? Jesus does not hide, cower, run, ignore. He is not afraid. In that moment, he does not pray for the Holy Spirit to rescue him and deliver him. He stands firm in the face of Satan's lies and says, it is written, it is written, it is written. He quotes God's truth. 
in the face of Satan's lies. How deeply we must know God's truth to replace the lies. We must know his word that we, when we hear the lies of the enemy, it just, it, it sounds dissonant. It's not God's word. It's, that's twisted. That's manipulated. We must know his word. Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, that I might not be led astray, that I might not hear the lies of the enemy. And when, or when I do, I recognize them for lies and speak the truth. We must store up his word in our heart. That's a lifelong pursuit. And I press on this because it's critical. If you're here and you're longing for purpose, for meaning, for satisfaction, for confidence, for freedom, for straight paths in your life, to know that exactly what you are doing is exactly God's will for you. Anyone uncertain? It is so vital that we get this step down, this habit down, that we replace the lies we hear in our world, inspired by the enemy, with the truth of God's word, and we stand upon them. This is what Paul said in Romans 12, is the renewal of our mind. Some of you may know this verse, powerful verse, Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't be like them. Don't be like it. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That you, by testing, may discern the will of God. What is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect. Anyone want that? Anyone want to discern exactly God's will for your life in all situations, in all circumstances? We're told how to do it right here, but I think sometimes we need to connect the dot. The renewal of my mind, what do you mean by that? Okay, Lord, renew my mind. Good prayer. Renewing me a clean heart is a good prayer. Renew my mind. This is actually work that we're called to. We renew our minds and are transformed by the truth of God's word. Hear me rightly, never is any of this apart from God's active work in and through us and the power of the Spirit. He works right with us, pedals on a bike. But we're called to renew. How do we do that? That's a lie. I renounce that lie. I replace it with God's truth. That is what renews our mind. We meditate on the Word. And so some here, here pick, pick a verse. Pick this verse. You want straight paths in your life? Some of you probably have this one stored up in Side you. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. I think that's NIV. Most likely. Uh, we, I think we sang that repeatedly as a kid growing up. It's stored up in my heart. Do I live it? Do I replace the lies, the lies of the enemy that would say, hey, you're not going the right way. You don't know what to do. And everything you do is, is, is coming to nothing. Any of those sound familiar, by the way? Uh, the enemy has the same tone to everything he speaks. It's a lying tone. But God's word says, trust in the Lord with all heart. Lean not on my own understanding, my own perception, Acknowledge him in all things and he will make paths straight. That's his truth. It's his promise. We replace the lie with the truth. That's the renewal of our mind. And it must be regular. must be habitual. If you do have that, those two verses memorized, do you have seven and eight memorized? I think we stopped there in the song. Seven and eight are equally as powerful. Be not wise in your own eyes. Don't always trust what you see in the world. There's always more going on. Be not wise in your own eyes, right? Humility, 
Fear the Lord, turn from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And I want that promise. And I could just articulate that. I think you can do that work. You go, there are promises in there that replace the lies of the enemy. That's the renewal of our mind. We repent. We rebuke the enemy. We replace. Number four, we receive. Receive God's forgiveness which has been promised. Receive His promises. See how these kind of flow one to another? We receive it by faith that it is ours. That when your word says, Draw near to God and He will draw near. We receive it. We are doing that today, Lord. As your people, we expect you to be near to us and to know it. We receive it by faith. Resist the enemy and he will flee. We are doing that work today. We expect it. We receive it is done. And on and on with the promises of God. We receive what He has done by faith. And we are renewed. We are seated with Him in the heavenlies. We are who He says we are. That's the drum that Paul is banging on through this letter. You are who God says you are. He has not changed. And maybe you're here and you're, you're hearing those steps. Repent, rebuke, receive, replace, receive. And you say, I... I I've done, all, I've done all of those, man. I, you know, I, I'll do it again, too. I'll do it again. I'll get, but my life is still void of these things you're talking about. I have no confidence that what I'm doing is God's will for me. I'm, I'm, life is like a mystery. I'm lost. I'm uncertain. I live with too much fear, anxiety, pain, suffering. How could this be God's will for me? I worry every time something bad happens, I've done something to offend God. No. What's missing? Is there something missing? And perhaps for those steps, you're like, that, that is clearly missing in my life. Then begin practicing. Begin it today. And see that the promises of God will be true in your life. And, but for those of you that say, I, I've done that, maybe not with the R's, but I've done that, I've walked that process, and I'm still longing, I'm missing something. It's like a tw- there is like twilight in my life. Continue being faithful, but I will ask this question, just like we heard in the video. How is your witness? If God's healing and His presence and His power is pouring into you, what is pouring out of you? How is your witness, your testimony, your proclamation of the gospel where you live, work, study, play? There must be an outflow Could it be this simple? If it feels like something is missing, if you're longing for significance, for meaning, for satisfaction, if that feels hazy and fuzzy, how is the witness? It's as simple, but not easy. It's simple because Paul proclaims it. This is what it must be. This is the call that we've received. The one and only call. The call to follow Jesus means the call to being sent. To being His sent ones. Just as Jesus said in John 20, 21, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. The same greatest missionary in the history of the world, Jesus, he is sending his disciples on the same mission. With some of his final words, Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations, all peoples. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. I hear it too often. Well, that was the disciples. He commissioned the disciples, and he told them to teach everyone every command that he gave them. Oh, not this one. Come on. Every command means you two are sent in the same authority and the same power, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. We are convicted of Acts 1.8 that the Holy Spirit will come upon us in power and we will be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. There must be an outflow. If that's missing, then no wonder everything else is hazy. There must be an outflow. And you say, what? but Paul was clearly an evangelist. That's not me. We think of the Smiths. We're talking about the Smiths. They sold everything had an incredible ministry of giving and serving the Lord in Houston, a beautiful farm with an incredible table that they hosted all kinds of peoples and connected it to the gospel. They were living out mission, and they sold everything and moved to be among some of the most poor people in the world. Isn't this just extreme? Paul's an extremist. The Smiths, and if you're listening online, you're extremists. Now, they're unique expressions. But they share the one same call that every one of us shares if we have heard the call of Jesus to trust and follow him. Our expression may look different. Praise God. He is a diverse and creative God in how he sends his people. Here's a, a, a portion of an email I got from Jeff a few weeks back. Maybe this will drive home this point. Jeff says, as, as a rhythm, I listen to, to you on our church via the website. He said, it's regrettable that I could not be there with you on Pentecost Sunday because I wanted to shout just how much I am with you and our family as we turn from aspiration to conviction. But I'm persuaded that like the first church, the calling is overrated. Calling. I don't feel called very much, but I do feel heavily sent. I think the right question is seldom, should I go or not? The right question is, whom shall we send? But we've all said yes to the ends of the earth when we declare Jesus Lord. But the Smith family didn't go. Our family, our church family sent us. And we will be sent until you call us home or until he does. There is nothing else. What am I saying? If you want to know love, grace, joy, forgiveness, freedom, the presence of God, the Word of God, it's found in Jesus and His mission. They are one and the same. It is not a mystery. It has been revealed. C.H. Spurgeon said this. A partial quote up here is a little stronger. And so I know I'm taking this out of context. He was a fiery man. But he said this. He said, every Christian is either a missionary or he is an imposter. You either spread the gospel, the kingdom of Christ, or else you do not love him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. There are not two calls. There is being called and then there is being sent. 
We may be sent to whole new fields. If we are like a greenhouse, we may be planted in whole new places. We may be planted across oceans. He may send us to all peoples in that way. But I also want you to consider that maybe you have already been sent. Have you received the sending? Where He has planted you in the neighborhoods you are in, in the workplaces, in the schools, in the communities. Have you already been sent that all peoples, every tribe, tongue, and nation are here. What is our testimony and our witness? It begins simply with what God is doing in our life, what He has done to transform us. And we just start to loosen our tongue. And, and again, I'll remind us of the challenge. I gave us a summer challenge. I've given you a month to think about it. If you haven't done it, I'll give you another month to do it. Because until we're in context... I mean, Jesus says, don't, don't, this is in a slightly different context, as if we have to give testimony before kings for being threatened. Hey, don't worry about what to say. I'll give you words to speak. I think we can apply in some ways. Hey, we trust you, Lord, to give us the words at the right time. But unless we're in those contexts ready, will we ever have a chance to share? And so the challenge was, kind of quoting Brian Loritz there, you heard him on the video, what do our tables look like? If we wanted to be a diverse people, which is God's people, what are our, it starts with our tables. What do they look like? Do they always look the same? Whether it's your dining room table, your kitchen table, your, your kitchen island, your patio table, your picnic table at the park, whatever the tables that we gather around, eating together is powerful. It's what Jews would not do with Gentiles until Jesus came and broke down those walls. And so what we are called to if we're already in the context, are we sent to open up our tables to invite a people? And the challenge was have some kind of gathering where at least half the people aim for it are, are people that would not normally sit at your table and probably people that have not invited you to theirs. It's simply open table, break bread, and share life and listen. Go with a posture of listening before a posture of speaking and just see what God will do. And I'm aiming for August 25th, that's the last Sunday in August, to have a testimony service, just to share your story. Not of radical results, those are up to the Lord, but of simply what that was like for you. Was there a testimony to share how you opened a table or found a table and gathered people not quite like you, all in the name and the love of Jesus? I look forward to that. I hope you mark your calendar and begin thinking about what you might say if you were called upon to give testimony. What, I, what did I say? Simple. Is that not simple? And for any one of us, it could be very fearful or scary or not easy, but it is a simple act. It doesn't have to even be a full meal, but a, a sharing of appetizers, a, a potluck, whatever works in your context. It may not even be in your home, but finding a table to open with others. How do we respond now? We draw near to Jesus at this table. Probably the most important table in our life. The one that we are, try to bring ourselves to, that place where he was with his disciples and he broke bread the night before his crucifixion and he shared it with his friends. This is how I communicate it with my kids when they grasp so little about what it means to truly love and follow Jesus, but they are wanting to. And so if that's you today, I grasp so little, I don't know. This table is open. It was for his disciples who still hadn't seen him go to the cross and rise from the grave. But they were with him. 
And so he broke bread and said, this will be my body for you, share. And he shared the cup and said, this is my blood shed for you. All they could do at that point was imagine what he was talking about. It didn't click. We do that now with the same kind of intentionality and imagination, putting ourselves back in that same place that he has just washed our feet. And he is now sharing his life with us. We come to his table. We draw near to him. And God's promise is he will draw near to us. We receive that. We rebuke the lies of the enemy. They would say, you're not worthy. You can't be forgiven today. You don't know enough. Walk out and go figure it out. Be better and then come back. We rebuke that lie. And we replace it with the truth that Jesus has come and died for all. And he says, come to me and find your life and find your healing. We declare it through song. I think we're going to sing a new song that's kind of a call and response song. If you feel led, we declare, we proclaim the truth through our words in song. That's why we respond this way. So I invite you, church, to respond. Team can come up and lead us. There's lots of ways to respond from coming to the table, singing these songs, giving generously, sharing what God is doing in our life with another, whether it's right now or in a few moments. If you need prayer, I would love to pray with you. It can happen during this service. It can happen after. There's lots of ways to respond to what God is speaking to us. May we be faithful. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your ongoing love and pursuit of us in all things, through all things. You are holy. You are worthy. You are king. We come and surrender. We come and bow. We are astonished again that you would choose us like you did for those, those 12. You would wash our feet. You would give your life for us. And then you would give us your power through the Spirit to be your ambassadors, to be the heralds of this good news. It is your only plan, and it's one and the same call, and we receive it today, Lord. Show us the expression of that, the right expression of that proclamation. But may it be rooted in true transformation, in the renewal of our minds. I pray for those here who truly need renewal, healing, need to know that you are near, need to know your grace and love and mercy, need to be able to cast out fear and lies and live with victory and confidence through the blood of Jesus. I pray you would do it according to your promise and we would never be the same. We would never be the same. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.